We're here. Radio Show's Thursday broadcast of the REPA Radio Hour. Stories and memories of the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern Captain and producer of the show, and we hope you'll enjoy the stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time. And you will join the conversation during the broadcast. Now, let's get the show in the air. Hey, Mike, what do you got for us? 
place that you, in the U.S. that uh, trained U.S. female pilots, a place called Sweetwater, and a story by Captain Bill Pappy about how he took a Boeing 727-200 to a flight to nowhere. And, of course, we all enjoyed the Reaper chat like we always do at the end of the storytelling. Here are the stories written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines with us each week. These are the stories written by the pilots that flew the airplanes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. Mr. Producer, I understand we have a sound clip from the first story. Well, Mike, here's a communication dialogue uh, recording of a pilot and the traffic controllers that does not fit into the standard communication practice required by the FAA. So let's listen in and see how it sounds. We are with you. We're sitting behind this cactus. Yeah, he seems to have evaporated. If you could maybe call your ramp and tell him he needs to, like, speak to me if he's going to park on the taxiway indefinitely. Cactus, 2017, are you back with me? Yep. Yeah, you can't hold there. What's the word on your gate? Trying to figure it out. Now, Francis, what gate are you waiting for? Francis is still waiting for our gate. Yes, and what gate would that be? Uh, gate uh, 8, uh, Francis. 2173 is a Bravo Hold Short Whiskey. We're not yet cleared in the ramp. There's no craft there. I'm aware of that. That's why you're parked there. You call me when you can get in the ramp. Grand Air Francis 06 Super, gate 8 is available for us. No, it's not. They lied to you. So just hold there. I'll call you when it's available. I don't need you to tell me what I can say and you can't. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, one at a time, please, gentlemen. Listen up before you key the mic and step on each other. Chinese Eastern, you had a question about your taxi route? Thank you, very good. If you can get under, over, or around the Lufthansa A340 between you and Gate 4, you tell me about it. We'll get a little taxi practice, 2601. Action 2601, hold short of runway A left to Charlie. Short A left to Charlie, 2601. Need you to use the full call sign, sir, so I can stop asking and move on to other traffic. American 2601, hold short of runway A left to Charlie. American Airlines 2601, short of A left to Charlie. American 2601 at Charlie, cross from my 8 left and then turn right on Bravo. Cross 8 left, then right on Bravo, American Airlines 2601. <laughs> American 2601, straight ahead, down, all the way down Bravo, once you get to Victor, call ground on point 9. I assume you mean American Airlines 2601, uh, Bravo, <laughs> Victor, and then uh, point 9 on the other side. I don't mean American Airlines. I mean American 2601, as, as we've said the whole time. Bravo to Victor on Victor Ground Point 9. Bravo Victor Point 9, American Airlines 2601. Negative, sir. The aircraft is still at the gate. Well, it's pushing now. Okay, and I have no way to get you there, and they have not begun pushing yet. I will pull you when I can get you there, and the gate is actually available. I've been doing this for a long time. I will move you when I can get you there. Okay. <laughs> We're running short of fuel. Better banana <laughs> Banana to 
it up and down the basic. So you're moving, sir? We're putting T1 power. We're obviously on a slight slippy bit here, okay? Uh, just please understand the safety. Okay, sorry. That's uh, power version 46. He just needs to inspect our left hand wing, sir. We just need to shut down one and two very quickly. In the meantime, we have to hold it. Okay, we're just getting close to our minimum fuel. He's going to move soon, sir. Uh, that's ridiculous, that's the version we're doing. It is. You guys obviously never think about safety, do you? Say that there's fuel enough uh, for the takeoff and uh, a couple of guys waiting for you guys. Please just shut up. Your engines are clear if that's what you want to know. No, thanks, sir. It's the wings for the engine. The wings are clear too. We can see right now. Sir, miles to five miles, six miles, correction, six airports inbound for touch and go. So that's connection 117, you got to speak quicker and faster, enter the right down runway 9 to right, 43 miles southeast, you're tying up my frequency. Wind now 32023, gust into 35. Target 22, uh, we can't land on uh, 22, uh, we're breaking off approach, and if you don't give us to uh, runway uh, 31 right, we're going to declare emergency. Alright, I'll pass it along, fly runway heading for now. Okay, we're declaring emergency, we're going to land 31 right, we're going to go left, and then we're coming around. Hurricane 2, Abby, just fly runway heading. Sure, the area. Okay, you're saying you declare an emergency at this? Three times I've told you that. Three times we're declaring an emergency. <laughs> okay, I just want to verify. I know you told me if you didn't get 31 right, you would have to declare emergency. Okay, understand, fly runway heading, and i got to get you a turn. Fly heading 180. You know what, American 2, Abby, uh, we are turning around to the left here and landing on 3-1. Remove everybody from our way. We've declared an emergency. We're on a visual. All right, American 2 Heavy, 31 right, clear to land, when 31024, gusts in a 3 flight. Thank you. Clear to land on runway 31 right, American 2 Heavy. Cactus 12, maintain 2000, cancel approach clearance. Maintain 2000, cancel approach clearance, Cactus 12. Yeah, you can. Keep moving. I'm going to move him here in just a minute. I got Travis Shortbottle behind you. You should never take an occupied taxiway. Cap 8, 70 heading cross straight left, left on Delta contact ground point 8. Keep that big body moving. Okay, uh, cross straight left on Delta and uh, ground today, Cap 8, 70. Thank you. And on it goes. <laughs> and on it goes. Oh, how many times have we heard communications like that, George and Mike. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah, international. Yeah. You can add all that confusion in, and you put a hot potato oh. in the controller's mouth, and that's what you get. Yeah. Wow. But was, was, that wasn't from one airport, was it? I mean, it was from a bunch of No, that was, fields, right? I, I've edited, yeah, and put a lot of them together there. Okay. Yeah, but uh, it happens on every flight. Uh, the communications, and that's the story of our next one. Chuck, how about it? Let me put, let me t turn your microphone on. Okay, Chuck, oh, do it again. Are you there? Yeah, we're here. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, uh, let's hear our first story of how Eastern Pilot thought of standard phraseology. Unlike what we just heard. <laughs> Here it is. This short story written by Captain Tom Bartley, titled Unusual Radio Communications, appeared in the 1995 issue of Repartee. It goes, 
Airline pilots are always correct, proper, and circumspect in their radio communications. If you believe that, I'll sell you a nice bridge from Brooklyn to Manhattan for a bargain price. (laughs) I think most pilots have deviated from standard radio procedures at one time or another for one reason or another. Even the late and highly esteemed Captain Joe Kelly, the epitome of proper conduct, permitted himself at least one deviation, which he told me about himself. I think it deserves to be recounted here. Joe taxied out for takeoff at Boston, cleared to the run-up block to hold for landing traffic. The weather was low, and a brand X, better known as Delta, flight was on final approach. He missed and went around. Joe continued to hold. The Brand X flight missed again and went around again. Joe called the tower and said, The next time he misses, how about a quick takeoff for us after he makes his first turnout? I think we are entitled to assume that the Brand X guy was not amused, whether he ever got in or went in to his alternate. I do not know. Another deviation which comes to mind at this time was not so mild and gentle. I listened in on an atrocious performance by a brand XX pilot and finally injected myself into the act with a few unfriendly words which were not well received. The brand XX flight was arriving at JFK from somewhere in the Midwest, maybe from Chicago. I was arriving from San Juan, working with approach control on VHF, when the X guy checked in on the frequency. I noted that his altitude was abnormally high for his reported position. The approach control operator issued him a clearance, which to me did not appear to be feasible due to the extra altitude. It did not appear feasible to the XX guy either which he immediately announced in a vituperative blast that was totally uncalled for. It was no surprise that he refused the clearance, but all he needed to say was that he couldn't get rid of that much altitude in that short a distance. He didn't have to start a war about it. Evidently, he was already spring-loaded to the hostility position for some reason. He kept right on blasting away, with both barrels, not saying anything really except in substance that the approach control operator was incompetent. Finally, I picked up the mic and said, ah, shut up, in my best attempt at a flatbush snarl. Instantly, he roared back, you shut up. The only one of the three of us who observed proper decorum was the approach control operator, He worked both of us down to airport control tower altitude, and we both landed without further misconduct. Admittedly, I was not of order myself to get into the act as I did. I have never felt any regret for giving that guy a well-earned verbal kick in the shins. (laughs) Evidently, he wasn't having one of his better days. Another case in which I did a little meddling comes to mind, and this one I do regret. I was tooling along at cruising altitude at about 2 a.m. one morning on the Atlanta-Houston leg 
of a night coach flight from New York to San Antonio. When we heard an eastern flight call our New Orleans station on company frequency, see if you can wake up the New Orleans tower on the telephone, he said. We can't raise them on tower frequency, and we need landing instructions. At that time, the Alpha had a campaign going against the use of the term landing instructions. I never thought we had much of a chance to win that that one, but I did agree. But I did agree in principle with the Alpha position, and it was my regular practice to play ball with the boys. Our EAL pilot said landing instructions a few more times in the conversation. I finally picked up the mic and said, when you get nearly to the ground, cut the engine and pull back on the wheel. Even at this late date, I would retract that statement retroactively if I could. I had passed up an excellent chance to keep my mouth shut. Occasionally, a deviation from normal communications procedure can occur unintentionally, which is what happened to me once, to my embarrassment. I was making a routine position report to a ground station when my flight engineer, not noticing that we were on the air, told me that he was going to the laboratory using very informal language, of course. The ground station operator must have failed to bring his brain with him to the airport that day. He reproved us for the faux pas, and in so doing, identified the flight by number. Fortunately, there were no further developments. Although this narrative deals principally with radio communications by pilots, I think an occurrence in which the star performer was a radio operator at our Houston-based named Ruthie, and deserves to be included here. I was flying a trip from New York to San Antonio with a Houston stop. At Beaumont, we checked in with Houston. Ruthie was on duty. She gave us the weather, which was ceiling 300 feet, visibility unlimited, wind southwest 16 miles per hour. We were stymied. Ceiling was below circling minimums. I told Ruthie that we would overfly and proceed to San Antonio. Then, as an afterthought, I said, but let us know if the wind gets down to six miles per hour or less. If it does, we can come on in. I hung my headphones on the hook with no expectation of being able to land at Houston. A few minutes later, a shout came out of my headphones, which were still on the hook. Hey, I've got you six miles. Ruthie said, construed, Ruthie had construed my conversation uh, in, as a request for a special weather observation to legalize the weather. We landed at Houston on the ILS. On final approach, the tower operator gave us the current weather loud and clear except the wind velocity, which was garbled, a delightful gargle, garble. Actually, the landing was no problem. We were in a L749 constellation that trip. I would not have attempted to land in on a L1049. Our Houston passenger never knew how fortunate they were that Ruthie had taken 
the bull by the horns. She did a good day, a good day's work for the company on that flight. Very good. Well, that reminds me. Um, I guess you guys well, remember our link letter and uh, one of his hey, uh, said, Chuck, Hey, Chuck, I've got Jim Holders with us. So, Jim, how about the next part? Yeah, I'll be glad to. I apologize. Uh, the guy was here helping me move furniture, and it took longer than I thought. So, yeah, I'm here. I'm ready. Well, hang on a second. Let Chuck uh, lead us into that, okay? Okay, Art Linkletter, okay. I think you said, Chuck. Yeah, I'm there. Go uh, ahead. Where were we? Oh, remember Art Linkletter? He, and we were quoting him as, kids say the darndest things. Well, sometimes pilots do, too. And the study be made at listening to all the words uttered over the microphones of airliners to controllers. And yes, even to each other, all over the world, there would be a non-standard radio physiology. You probably would have one-liners from the moon and back. Yeah. Yeah. Repartee had many contributors over the 49 years of existence. Uh, next year will be 50. That's correct. Captain Jerry Wood, a legend in his own right at Eastern, wrote a letter to repartee editor Captain Lalo Owens, which was picked up by the Airline Pilots Association national magazine, Airline Pilots, explaining, quote, mark, making, marking one's territory, end quote. In other words, a way of reminding others of who's the boss. Mr. Producer, let's hear what he had to say in the letter. In the 1978 issue of Repartee, in the category of Nostalgia Corner, the following letter was written to Captain Rollo Owen, Secretary Retired Eastern Pilots Association, Atlanta, Georgia, and it was from Captain Jerry Wood. Dear Rollo, on page 8 of the February-March 1978 Repartee, Captain Bert Pope closes his letter to you with the query. By the way, Rollo, did you ever find out whether it is in the operations manual or is it just unwritten law that the captain gets the bed next to the window? <laughs> if you find out, let me know. Best regards, Bert Poe. Now, I believe I am the only one who has ever made an in-depth study of this most difficult and complex problem. Certainly, I know of no other study that has been reduced to writing and circulated throughout the industry. In 1944, with approximately two years in each of the seats, I felt eminently qualified to comment on all aspects of the airline pilot's job, including the delicate problem posed by Bert. Therefore, I did just that. Of course, lack of being qualified probably would not have stopped me anyway. I am therefore enclosing a copy of A Scientific Diagnosis of Airline Flying by a General Practitioner. This thoughtful and scholarly <clears throat> treatise was inspired by the gripes of my co-pilot for the month, whose name escapes me, but he may remember, in keeping with the solemnity and dignity of the subject, I wrote, 
it on the back of a couple of envelopes while fighting the headwinds down the Piedmont to Atlanta on old Flight 25 and 26. This gave me plenty of time. Using the little old light on the left side of the DC-3 cockpit, I gave it to him and forgot about it. Next thing I knew, it turned up in the airline pilot magazine under my name in early 1944. It was reproduced by several airlines for all employees in their Falcon-type publications, United Airlines and Northwest Airlines, for example. I guess they wanted to promote sympathy for the co-pilots. I wish I could remember this Benedict Arnold, who sent it to Dave Binky, president of ALPA, but I, I can't because Dave would publish anything. So to get back to Bert, I think this is the only actual analysis of this monumental problem. I'm sorry I covered it in one paragraph. I remember one related incident with much pleasure and amusement. Just before I was promoted to captain, I made a New York-Miami trip with Charlie Schuster, the wonderful guy. Charlie delayed a bit in the lobby, so I arrived first at the cubicle-type sweat box we got for a dollar in the Columbus Hotel. When Charlie came into the room, I was lying on the bed by the window with suitcase and clothes appropriately arranged. Charlie looked absolutely aghast for a moment and then said, Well, I'll be damned. I said, Charlie, I'm just practicing. Charlie thought for a second, grinned, and said, Jerry, you need all the practice you can get. It's all yours. Now, what the hell do you suppose he meant by a crack like that? In closing, my best regards to you and Bert and all the other senior senior characters, many of whom were rosy-cheeked lads when the attached bit of nonsense was written. Sincerely, Jerry Wood. <laughs> George? Okay, next comes the article entitled, quote, A Scientific Diagnosis of Airline Flying. Go right ahead, Neil. You'll enjoy it. Now, here's the article written by Captain Jerry Wood that received such fame and notoriety. Its title is A Scientific Diagnosis of Airline Flying by a General Practitioner. Airline flying is a sedentary existence accompanied by moments of intense consternation. It is indulged in by various male characters who live in towns they don't like, fly to places where they don't want to go, and occasionally can't find, over a route which is completely uninteresting. The sole purpose of the trip is so the return journey can be made the following day. There is no other reason. The entire process is repeated periodically. Two of these male characters go on each trip. There is a senior character and a junior character. The senior character sits in the left seat and tries to maintain an air of cool, calm, resourcefulness, and competence. He doesn't talk much unless he feels like it. He looks straight ahead. The junior character sits in the right seat. His mannerisms are frequently 
touched with hesitancy and uncertainty. A wild look occasionally enters his eye. His palms are sometimes moist. He doesn't talk much either, even when he does feel like it. He looks over at the senior character frequently and hopefully, usually to no avail. (laughs) The chief requirement for proficiency in this peculiar profession is the ability to sleep when you're not tired. Then later, stay awake when you are tired as heck. Everything else is easy. Fresh air is very bad for these junior characters. However, the senior character always protects himself by sleeping in the bed by the window, thereby effectively blocking the entrance of that highly undesirable element. This protection is also amplified to include testing the shower first, precedence of egress and ingress through all doors, portals, cellars, taxi cabs, and airplanes. It is magnanimous of the senior character to provide the protection in view of the fact that they pay the same for all such items of service. A junior character was once heard to mutter, General Sherman must have been a co-pilot when he made his famous remark about war. (laughs) Most of these characters live with and frequently, quite frequently, are married to a female character. She usually greets him upon his return from a tough trip with, Why the blank blank don't you get on flight 16 and 17? It pays $102.50 a round trip. Art Fegg is one is on it, and you are senior to Art, and they are having their downstairs carpeted. There are many hobbies, some by farms intending to be gentlemen farmers, cheerfully overlooking the fact that they are unqualified by inclination and training to be either a gentleman or a farmer. Many buy expensive woodworking equipment, start to build furniture, This hobby is usually short-lived due to running out of fingers and thumbs. The most popular, however, is studying the seniority list. Now, a seniority list is a compendium of names and numbers representing all the characters on the airline. It is composed of good guys and louses. The ratio of good guys to louses is, of course, contingent upon the viewpoint of the interested character. In other words, everyone with a number lower than his is a louse. Everyone with a number higher than his is a charming citizen. Then there are the senior senior characters. They can be identified by graying temples, high foreheads, a cool, reserved attitude, and much dignity. As a rule, They don't stir around much during the day, preferring to remain in their accustomed haunts until the cool of the evening, or at least until 6 p.m. They are very active. They are very active during the night, but disappear shortly after 6 a.m. the following morning. No one has ever seen one during the heat of the day. These nocturnal characters are substantial citizens usually owning large homes and small families. Their love for both is second only to their passion for conducting all their aeronautical activities 
between the hours of 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. Mighty puzzling. Tempts one to stay up all night sometime and observe. All in all, it's an amazing business. This character is now going to get the seniority list out and study it carefully. I might be senior to Art Fig at that. What the hell? We'll carpet the whole joint. <laughs> Jerry was well, a good writer. George? Yeah, well, I'm sure conditions improved a lot thanks to the uh, Airline Pilots Association Union negotiating better, quote, working, unquote, conditions for pilots, namely uh, no more sharing rooms. Captain Jerry was probably involved with this also. I mean, I didn't know him, but he probably was. Neil, you mentioned you had an interesting experience early in your Eastern career. Can you tell us a little more about it? Yeah, as a junior character to a senior character, and that senior character being none other than Captain Lee Hines, which, Jim Holder, you know well, too, yes. I believe. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. George, you might remember Lee. Lee was the Alpha safety chairman for many years and also the captain that had the hijacker come aboard the airplane in Houston down the jetway and shot the agent there. But yeah, I, I was on the Convair. Yep. Do you remember that? Yeah. I was on yep. the Convair. Maybe it was a 727 with Lee Hines and, we Good had a trip together. Yeah, mm-hmm. we had a trip together for the whole month. And I'd never flown with Lee, and I knew he was of importance because of his association with Alpha and all that he had done uh, as far as airline safety. And uh, so uh, I tried to be on my on my uh, on my best. But uh, I had a tendency back in those days to whistle. And one of the songs I really enjoyed whistling was The High and the Mighty, you know, uh, the John Wayne movie. Mm. And uh, I don't mm. know whether it was that whistle or uh, High and Mighty or another whistle, but I started my whistling as we taxied out from Atlanta going to our first uh, uh, first stop. And uh, Lee didn't say anything, and, and um, he took off and... I got the clearance. We made to take off, and we landed in the, the destination airport, or not the destination, but the stop along the way. And uh, sure enough, after taxiing, getting the ground ground control, going back in, I started my whistling again, just to show him that I was very relaxed, I guess. But uh, anyway, that went on for the rest of the day, and and uh, the next leg I thought I was going to take off get the takeoff and the landing but Lee took control of the airplane again and he took off and landed and and I think uh, another stop and we got to our final destination but for the day I had no takeoffs and no landings and uh, I kind of felt like well this guy doesn't really like me but uh, the next day he said uh, would you like to fly the airplane and I said, yeah. He said, uh, since when did you, since when were you promoted to captain? That's what he said first. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean promoted to captain? He said, well, you whistle all the time. And he said, uh, uh, do you think that you've got the authority or something like that to do all this whistling? 
And I said, no. He said, well, if you'll stop whistling, I'll let you fly the airplane. <laughs> that was his last <laughs> remark. But Lee Hines and I became very good friends. As a matter of fact, he gave us our first dog in Atlanta, a puppy. And um, great guy. Lee was a great guy. Any any uh, thing like that unusual happening to you guys, Jim or George or Mike? Yeah, I got a Lee Hines story. Go uh, ahead. I was a co-pilot, first officer, and the second officer, of course, was sitting behind me, and Lee's sitting in the left seat. And he could take 10 minutes to tell you something that most people could tell you in 30 seconds. And so we're coming up on Atlanta or someplace. I don't know what it was, you know. All of a sudden, he decided that he wanted – he normally made all the announcements, which went on forever. And uh, he decided he wanted the the, uh, second officer – to make an announcement coming up over whatever it was. And it might have been Atlanta, I don't know. So he turns to me and he says, uh, right, as of right now, I want you to pretend that you are the captain. <laughs> okay, what do I do, captain? And he said, I want you to delegate your responsibility uh, that I've given you to the second officer and ask him if he would now be qualified as a first officer to make an announcement about the fact that we were going over Atlanta. And so he went through that whole thing. After he told us what he was going to tell us, he told us again. By now, we're 40 miles past Atlanta. I mean, the second officer back there. And he's like, and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, we were almost to South Carolina, and the second officer was telling them we're over Atlanta. Because Neil Allen, I mean, not Neil Allen, Lee Hines just took forever to tell something. I thought to myself, well, what a waste of time that was. Well, flying within the month that we did and uh, several trips, uh, several uh, other uh, segments, uh, sequences that I had the chance of flying with Lee uh, on the mm-hmm. 727, he'd always make the announcement to the senior flight attendant, or to any flight attendant for that matter, that he mm-hmm. had not met before. And he would always introduce himself as Captain Lee Hines. And he said, oh, by the way, this is my birthday. And he said 50% of the time he got kisses. <laughs> he got kisses. <laughs> really his birthday. <laughs> it wasn't really his birthday, but it worked for him. Absolutely. There you go. Neil, do you remember uh, Joe Myers at all? Oh, yes, I do. Joe Myers. Oh, yeah, well, well I can tell you a funny story about him. You know, Meyer the Flyer. And uh, when I was a brand-new wrench with the company in 1970, here, you know, I'm flying a trip out of Kennedy with Myers and some other junior co-pilot. So, uh, you know, Myers was – he was the safety chairman in New York, right? So, yeah. anyway, we after we went on our trip, we're coming back home, and they cleared us into gate 10 – at Kennedy, if you remember where that was, that was tucked all the way up in the corner there. In the corner. Oh, there Lord, a, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And there was a fence yeah. right there. So yeah. anyway, we're taxiing in, and, and, and the co-pilot, he says to him, uh, you know, Joe, you, you're getting awful close to that fence over there. You better be careful. <laughs> and he, he, he tells him, oh, you better shut up, Sonny. I've been here a thousand times. I know what I'm doing. Don't worry about it. Well, lo and behold, he hit the fence and knocked a couple of feet off the <laughs> Off the tip of the 727, right? And I'm sitting there, I can't believe it's stuff. But anyway, I go to work a couple of days later, 
and somebody put up a sign on the fence there that stated <laughs> the Joe Joe Myers <laughs> Memorial Fence right up on that fence. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. I, I I think I remember that because I got involved putting a new left wing tip on that airplane. <laughs> oh yeah, probably. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I was the engineer on that flight. I'm saying, what am I getting myself into here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another guy was flying with him, and I think it might have been Don Teal or something up there. But he said they were coming in gate ten. And he disguised <laughs> Myers, and they coming in, and 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 he said, "Look out, look out!" You know, he was leaning over and said, "Man, we getting close." No, no, no. And they come on in, and the agent came running up the stairs. The jetway says, "Captain, you just hit that fence." He said, "Oh no, not again!" <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, speak, speaking of Joe Myers, whenever I would go to Newark on a trip, which was rarely, I didn't like it because it was a long drive. But somebody made up stickers back then. You know, they had the uh, basket where you threw the uh, coin in, or you know, to go through the toll. And somebody mm-hmm. on and every every uh, every change lane where you had the exact change or one of those tokens had a had a sticker on it. Get Joe Myers. I don't know who put those. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, yeah. I think Joe Myers also had a lot of uh, time in the pool bar there in uh, Miami, uh, training in the training sessions. Mm-hmm. Stories about that, yeah. <laughs> so he he was a character, you know. He really yeah, was. we had a plenty really of them. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, there was another one. I don't know. Uh, Jim probably knows him. J. Arden Williams. Did you know him, Jim? Oh, Arden Williams, Lord, do I got stories about him. I'm here to tell yeah, you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to fly with him. But, but he, I was the chair. Let's see, I think I was the uh, captain rep, and he was commuting to LaGuardia to fly a 727 right. captain. And uh, and I think he was based in New York at the time. And and he he got in trouble with a check captain, second, I mean, a check second officer. He told he wouldn't use the checklist. Do you ever hear that story? No, I no, never heard that one. <laughs> yeah, he he just told him. He said, "You don't need to reuse the checklist. You know, I get mine, you get yours, and all that kind of stuff." And they and they this particular flight, it was going up to Boston, you know, out of LaGuardia, the shuttle, and it was a yeah. it was a check second officer. And he said, "Well, Captain, I'm going to have to insist we do this." And he said, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, I'm a, you know I'm going to insist that we use the checklist. I'm not going to sit back here and be dumbass." And so he started reading it, and Arden opened the wheels, grabbed the checklist, and threw it out the window. <laughs> oh, boy. When they got back to LaGuardia, the chief pilot was waiting there at the gate. And uh, I, I think they it, gave yeah. him a week on the ground or something like that. He, he opened the window and threw the checklist out. That's sort of well, you know, stupid can you be. Well, you know, Jim, <laughs> I, had a, I had a 727 flight as co-pilot, and uh, this guy hands me a half vertically sheared checklist that had been cut right down the center vertically uh-huh. he, he, he says here you take care of your side and I take care of my side <laughs> that's you know, all the checklist he wanted read that was it <laughs> there was you know, another story about I'm going to give you all the emergencies you're going to need them yeah. <laughs> well Arden Williams you know at one point we were hiring a lot of new hires and 
he got in the habit of, you know, just taxiing out on a 727 on two engines. And, and then, but he would wait until after they were cleared for takeoff, tell the engineer, okay, we're going to crank up the number two engine. Hey, you know, these kids were all brand new. And, you know, I mean, half of the time they're halfway down the runway before the engine got, got running. <laughs> yeah. So I, I showed up for, I showed up for a trip one day and, and Lloyd Griffiths, who was the chief pilot at the time, he said, uh, you know, who's over at gate, whatever it was, this was the Kennedy. I said, no, who? He goes, J. Arden Williams. I said, yeah, well, what about it? He said, well, he said, I want you to talk to him. I said, well, what do you want me to say to him? He said, well, you know, you're his representative, and here's what he's been doing, what I just told you. He said, I'm going to fire his butt if he doesn't stop doing it. So anyway, I walked out to the gate, and uh, so I I knocked on the door, went in the cockpit, and Arden was in there with the crew. I said, hey, uh, Arden, you know uh, Lloyd Griffiths? He's, oh, I know that boy. He, he's the chief pilot here at Kennedy. I said, yo, I just got done speaking with him. I said, and he told me you've been having these kids start the engine while you're rolling down the runway. He said, and if you don't stop doing that, he's going to wind up firing your butt. And he said, oh, he can't be serious, is he? I said, yeah, he's very, very serious. And about... Two weeks after that, I heard from a couple of engineers. I guess he told that story to every to all of them, and he said now he's they're taxiing out on all three and running all three and everything else. You know? <laughs> but he he made it to age sixty retirement. They never fired him. But Griffiths, I think he would have fired him. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. My favorite. I got a, I got a little. Story. I got a little story. Oh, if you're ready. Right. Let's hear Mike's, and then we'll hear uh, uh, Jim's. This is fun. I enjoy this. Yeah, I when, when I was a new green, uh, I came out of being a co-pilot on the on the on the seven three seven non-rated, and I went. I, I was engineer. Just finished school uh, at American Airlines to get my engineer's uh, ticket, and then we were flying all these contract guys on this new seven twenty seven that we had that belonged to my Kuwaiti boss. And the airplane was a uh, that we bought that he had bought was a Trans Australian Air, Airlines airplane, and it had a uh, had a mechanical checklist up on the side of the uh, forward side of the engineers panel, and I had the American Airlines checklist that I was used to using for my training. Now I'm flying with a Pan Am guy in the left seat and a, and an ex Continental guy in the right hand seat, so they all wanted they all handed me their checklists. They all wanted to hear certain call-outs and all this. So, I mean, I was, and, and we, I think we had this, the, the trip that we were flying, it was at, out of Dallas, and I forgot what gate we were, or hard stand we were parked on, but it was, it was real close, a real short taxi to go through all of this stuff, and here I'm pretty green on all this. So I'm going through all these checklist things, trying to remember what the heck to do with everything, and they're looking for different call-outs and all that, and I tried my best to to read all through all the call-outs for all those different checklists. Next thing you know, we're charging down the runway, and we're about halfway through the climb-out, and I finally played catch-up with all of this stuff. Fortunately, I got the APU shut off before we took off. And then, and then I finally reached over to the captain, and I tapped him on the shoulder, and I told him, the after-star check is complete. Climb <laughs> 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 out. Yeah. Jim, yours? Yeah, I, I may have told this story before, but uh, Arden, Arden was famous for getting screwed up and doing things and he just was his own worst enemy no doubt about it and he called oh, yeah. me up one day and he said uh 
Paul Kelly has been given me a week on the ground. And I said, well, well, damn, Arden, what did you do this time? He said, well, I couldn't make a trip. And he was on reserve, and he said, I couldn't make a trip. I said, well, why couldn't you make a trip? He said, my car was in the shop. And I said, your car is in the shop. They call you for a trip, and you tell them you can't come because your car is in the shop. And he said, yeah, that's what I did. And I said, well, Arden, don't you think you deserve a week on the ground? And he said, well, I, I don't know. Maybe I do. I said, listen. If this ever happens again, don't you tell them you can't come. I'll come up there to Marietta, 50 miles, and I'll get you, and I'll drive you to the airport, but I'd be damned if I'm taking you home when you get back. <laughs> <laughs> the guy, he can process, he could have rented a car, took a, took a cab or something like that. He just told him he couldn't come, and he's on his well, I can't come. <laughs> I, got, I have one more Jay Arden story for you. I was flying with him when I was a co-pilot on a trip from uh, Kennedy to Miami to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and then we went back to Miami. And so we're, I don't know, maybe 110 miles from Port-au-Prince at 33,000 feet. And he says, uh, get, get, you know, he never, he was never nice. He just said, get me lower. So uh, I asked the <laughs> controller, I said, you know, we'd like to get lower. And they said, unable, you got traffic here and here and here and here. You know, I had no radar out there. So now we're just we're still going along, and now we're about 75 miles from the airport at Port-au-Prince, and he tells me again, get me lower. I said, well, you know, you, you could slow up, you know, do 250 knots and descend VFR out here. You could do that. It's legal. No, he said, you can't do that. I said, yeah, you can. Anyway, we're about 60 miles from the airport, and finally ATC clears us down to lower altitude, I don't know, down to 2,000 feet or something like that. So... He pulls the throttles back, pulls the speed brake out, and down we go at, you know, barber pole. So now we go over the top of the airport at barber pole speed at about 10,000 or 11,000 feet. So uh, now he says, well, we're going to do a 360 out here. He says, tell the tower that. So I tell the tower, and I said, but Arden, you better slow up. And now we're still doing barber pole. He said, well, why do I have to slow up? I said, well, you see that mountains out there? You're going to run into them. He says, no way. I said, yeah, if you don't slow up, that, that radius turn is going to take. Anyway, long story short, he keeps banking the airplane more and more and more. We're like in a 60-degree bank to keep from hitting the mountains out there. We finally get down, our final approach, and he slams the thing on the runway. You know? so I said, oh, my God, what a trip. He said, now, he, yeah. said, you know, he tells me, he said, I want you to get up and say goodbye to the people. I said, what, are you crazy? I'm not going to Better for that door. disaster. He said, well, he said, the whole thing was your fault. I said, no, it wasn't. I said, you can go stand by the door. He said, yeah, but, but the best part is he tells the engineer, he says, tell him I don't want to speak to him for the rest of the trip. So he went, the next day we went back to Miami, and then the next day we went to Atlanta and back to Kennedy, and he wouldn't talk to me. And when it comes time to read the checklist, he'd tell the engineer, well, you go ahead and read his part of the checklist. I don't want to talk to him. He blamed me for the whole thing, you know. I don't know. It was funny. I thought it was funny, you know. Well, I got I got one more short Arden story. I may have told you, but, but Arden is just a little bit senior to me, and we were flying a lot of L.A. stuff then, and I had a real good L.A. trip. And Arden was just unlucky in love and all that. I don't think he ever married. And uh, But he called me up late one night and said, Listen, you're just an artist. I want you to, to drop trips with me. And basically, he, his girlfriend he had met in L.A. was going to be flying on Eastern 
the next day or maybe the day after that or something, and he wanted to swap trips. And I knew Arden was having trouble with women and getting dates and all that, so I agreed to do it and all that. And uh, <laughs> I flew this terrible trip that he had. I forgot what it was, but I was, you know, I'm a hip guy and love out, you know. And so that <laughs> next day, uh, I went out and flew that trip, and he flew to L.A., and he called me up the next day. And uh, I was glad to hear from him. I said, Arden, how did it go? Your girlfriend's on the trip, and you're flying. And he said, oh, it was terrible. We had thunderstorms all the way, and I was, had to fly the airplane. The captain made me fly it. The autopilot wasn't working, and I was going through thunderstorms. She peeped all the way to Atlanta. I hadn't seen her since. <laughs> he's bad luck, boy. They would get the girls on the impressor and he's flying the airplane and it was a terrible flight four hours all the way to Atlanta. <laughs> that, that that that's probably why he moved up to New York to fly out of the Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> oh poor Arden. Well, God rest his soul. It, it, yeah. it made me laugh every time I thought about that. Yeah, he, he had a good heart. He had a good yeah, he heart. Did. You're he right. His own yeah. worst enemy, but he was a you know he was a good guy. He just just bad luck you know, <laughs> followed him around, and he created most of it. <laughs> oh man. Hey, uh, Neil. Yeah, go ahead, Don. Um. Uh, one more story, not about flying necessarily, about when, the, when you guys taxiing up to the gate. I got a call in Miami from uh, our controller in Ram Tower, and uh, he said, can you go over to Concord 6 to meet flight so-and-so? And I said, yeah, sure, I can make it. So I had to run across the ramp from 5 to 6 in Miami. They were putting those underground fuel lines in at the time. I got through all that. I got to the jetway, and the jetway was already pulled up to the aircraft. And when I ran up the back stairs, I opened the door, and there was two two mechanics and a cleaner standing there with screwdrivers beating the hell out of the raft. (laughs) The little trainee flight attendant didn't hook up the uh, raft for opening the door. The escape raft. And that thing oh, yeah. all over the goddamn uh, the jetway. It was crazy. <laughs> it was, it, it, yeah, that happened a bunch of times. Beating the hell out of it with the screwdrivers. Screwdrivers. <laughs> well, they were trying to stay, They were trying to let the air out of it. Oh yeah. yeah. Unless you get a sharp screwdriver, it's not yeah. going to work. Well, yeah. You know, we were talking earlier about the uh, the ATC stuff. When I, I may have told you guys the story before, but when I was uh, when, in, when I was still in the maintenance with Eastern there, we used to use uh, either at Kennedy we used either Pan Am or British Airways for the for the customs, for the Antigua, and the Mexico trips. Now the Antigua trip was a 727, and the uh, the uh, Mexico trip was a 1011, and we had this interchange with Air Canada with their airplane and just happened that the the, the flight 900 I believe it was coming back from Acapulco uh, it was coming into Kennedy and we used to, as mechanics we used to wait at the terminal to pick up the uh, the airplanes and either bring them back to the terminal or take them down to the hangar for maintenance but anyway so we're we're sitting there actually on the Antigua airplane the 7-2 
listening on the radio because we didn't get pushed back until Pan Am got through pushing all their airplanes off. So we just sit and monitor things on the radio until it was time for them to come push us. But anyway, in the meantime, Flight 900 came in, but it was a uh, it was an Air Canada airplane. It was the Eastern Flight 900, and they had just landed, and and so so they're asking for taxi instructions to to once they cleared the runway to go to the Pan Am uh, Pan Am terminal. So the controller got a little confused at first, and he says, "Okay, wait a minute now. I just want to get this straight before I make any mistakes." He <laughs> says, "Your Eastern Eastern 900, and you're in an Air Canada airplane, and you want to go to the Pan Am terminal." <laughs> we get that. We got that one straight. So I just wanted to make yeah. sure before I gave you any instructions. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, that worked. I tell you what. This is really a lot of fun. I can't wait to do it again next week. But uh, <laughs> we got to get out of here, and uh, I'm going to play some good music here. Neil, and, real uh, quick. Real quick, go ahead. Send me that doctor thing about airline pilots. Can you do that? I want to put it to report or take. The which one about the senior character? One about the doctor. Yeah, the character. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I yeah, sure will. Well, that's our music playing now in the background, so we'll see you again next week when we have talk like what you just heard. A lot of fun. And uh, most all of our material comes out of the pages of Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, who also are our sponsors for the Monday night show. And um, so we're we're happy to, to do the Repo Radio Hour. Remember the EAL radio show Monday evening. Uh, Dorothy, you still on the air? And if so, uh, what, what's it about? Uh, the show on Monday is the Eastern movie-themed songs of the 70s music. Oh, yeah. Great and music. followed by the next one will be the open mic and the uh, surplus of pilots and a couple of other things that you have in mind. Well, with an open mic, if we could have a conversation that we just had, uh, I'd be happy every show to talk about Eastern the way you just heard. And, uh, folks, these are true stories, even though some of them you can't hardly (laughs) believe, but uh, they're true stories. And some of us experienced uh, these stories that we we talk about. And uh, so we are on the air Monday at 7 p.m., and Thursdays at 3 p.m. And we hope you tune us in. And it's time to say so long, Eastern, and so long to our Eastern family, uh, to our host uh, and all participating in today's show. Thank you so much for being here and listening. And uh, we love you, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. Love Taking you away and leaving me lonely. Silver wings slowly fading out of sight. Slowly fading out of sight. See you Monday night. See you Monday night. Good job.